St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Recordings of Further Up, Further In, the monthly discussion group dedicated to studying challenging and enlightening texts of the Orthodox tradition, led by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. Let's look at uh, page 22, and then we probably need to move on to another section after section one. Uh, should we just go ahead and do that? Or oh, I want to hit this. Uh, Gregory the Great at the very top. The language of souls is their desire. Uh, could somebody read this next paragraph that starts with God is love? I'll read. God is love. He is the ecstasy of love, overflowing outside himself, enabling creatures to share in his life. Through his life, they share the same overflowing force which we see already displayed in Eros, the love of man and woman, and which is designed to be perfected in holiness, in conscious fellowship with him who is the fullness of beauty and goodness. Amidst horror and death, there is something greater, the secret of love. The story of creation is a magnificent song of songs. Desires in the first place God's desire for us, to which all human, or to be exact, divine human, Eros is seeking to respond. The inspired poet of Eros is Dionysius the Areopagite, and Maximus the Confessor, commenting on him, does not hesitate to equate Eros with agape, Latin caritas, disinterested love, considerateness, and service, which participates in the love of God for his creatures. Eros expresses chiefly a natural impulse, Agape is meeting between persons that is full of tenderness. One might say that Eros is meant to be the subject of agape. Why does he go to this aspect of God as love? Or what do you think about him talking about God as the ecstasy of love? Well, when he uses that word, does that mean ecstasy in more or less its literal sense? Yes. Like going out of oneself? Yeah, if you look at the next quote from Dionysius. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's kind of a unified theory of God and his creation. Mm -hmm. Why? Because God is love. Bingo. That's, when I was a teenager, that was my revelation. You know, any teen, that's why I asked what, what age was Hillary when he did all this because right. that's the age that you're waking up like, oh my God, yeah. what am I? Why am I? Why is this? Why should I go on? Why not kill myself? Right. Because God is love. <laughs> why, you know, I, I, when I'm, a, I'm a hospice nurse and I talk with my patients and families. Why has he gone through this? Why? Right. Because there's that transcendental, unifying explanation of love. You know, that's where he's going. He's going to love. That's why he came here because of love. Right. That's why you're crying because of love. It's it's beauty. And then the, the page before that, when he was talking about mm -hmm. beauty, it's <laughs> it's another why. It's another answer to why. Well, I think that well, I'm glad that you brought in the beauty there because I think. Uh, you could say God is love, and I think it encapsulates uh, what he talks about on the other side is God is absolute beauty. Um, because, and he also talks about goodness in there. Because I think love, we can all as, uh, understand beauty and goodness tied up with love. Um, and then we can relate that, I think, to God, uh, especially uh, in ways analogous to our own relationships with others we understand and can learn about God even through our you know broken relationships but that we mm -hmm. still love through those broken relationships um, as he says here it's already displayed in the Eros the love of man and woman um, Eros and agape here um, what happens kind of I mean we can already know Eros is uh, the root word for something like erotic, right? 
Uh, and that's where, at the end of the, the paragraph, Eros expresses chiefly a natural impulse. Um, what you have here is the, he's not necessarily, uh, just be not vulgar, but pointed. He's not talking about Eros as sex drive here. He's talking about something deeper and more like our desire to be in communion uh, with another that is a natural, deep-seated um, thing that drives us forward. That's a different than agape because agape is kind of, I mean, C.S. Lewis does this where uh, he breaks this down and talks about what is it, the four loves and he talks about some of uh, this aspect. Or agape is this, um, as he says here, I like these, the definitions he gives these actually, a meeting between persons that is full of tenderness where these uh, eros and agape meet together. Um, but to, to define God as love with eros, I think it can be a kind of revelation for us that there's a, <laughs> a deep abiding and then even uh, as Reed was directing our attention uh, with Dionysius, this ecstasis. Do you know what ecstatic means? Uh, stand outside yourself. To stand outside of yourself. Uh, that God himself overcomes the gap of the creator and the creature to extend his love all the way to us. Um, as Dionysius you know, says here, uh, because of it, lovers no longer belong to themselves, but to those whom they love. He's talking about God here. God also goes out of himself when he captivates all creatures by the spell of his love and his desire. In a word, we might say that beauty and goodness is the object of the Eros desire and is the Eros desire itself. Um, this, I love it too, the, like the whole story of creation is in the magnificent Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. Do you all know the Song of Songs is this kind of tale of, uh, uh, penned by Solomon about the love between uh, a man and a woman, basically. And there's problems, there's back and forth. And the Jewish mm -hmm. tradition, they wouldn't allow uh, people to read Song of Songs until they were, I think it was like 30 or something, you had to be an adult in order, uh, partly probably because of the content, uh, but also that it's that you could be mature enough in order to handle it, that kind of um, literature and be able to spiritualize it, that it's not just Solomon. You do have Protestant pastors who will do a series on that, and it's basically like your best sex life now about couple of like, advice. I'm serious about, like, that's how they read that, that book. And the tradition, that is not how we read that book. Uh, and it's something beyond that. Uh, enough about I, that. <laughs> I see all that. I think of all that stuff in the in terms of being created in God's God's image and likeness. That's why we have those aspects. You know, why? My God, why get married? <laughs> right? Why get married? It's not just to make kids. No. That 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 thrill is gone yep. <laughs> pretty quickly. Yeah. But because we're and you think this is the relationship that God has with me too. Right. Yeah, you know, like you said, song of songs, it's back and forth, it's a it's a love story. And it's also how God, I think, um, is always trying to um, well, at the top of twenty four, his uh, and I think come on, this is God's, I'll say, rhetoric, the way that he tries to appeal to us is very, I'm going to go Paul, Paul route here, right? It's all about the cross. And that's the power of his self, of how he calls us. Because God, let's look at uh, the top of 24. Uh, would somebody like to read just that first paragraph there? Michael, do you mind? Sure. So then the offer, God offers himself wishes to disclose himself, but he does not force us. His power is the power of love, and love wants the freedom of the beloved. God speaks and at the same time keeps silent. He knocks at the door and waits. Everything is dependent upon the royal freedom of faith. Everything hangs upon our decision. When you define God as love in this particular way, that he, the end of everything, of all of creation, uh, that God will be all and in all, as we talk about later actually in this first part. Um, that means though that you don't love robots because robots can't love you back. Uh, God offers himself, but he never forces himself upon us. 
Uh, he never, and that's why the rhetoric of the cross is, you know, this is God's great love statement. This is the depth that he's willing to go for us. He could have come uh, and done all sorts of, you know, like, this is always the question. Like, why did God have to die on a cross? Why couldn't he have just come and said, like, all right, everybody, line up. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. <laughs> You're now going to be mine. <laughs> uh, you ran away, and now I'm here to get what's mine. Uh and this, I think, sets up uh, well for this next chapter about uh, God kind of hidden and uh, is that God speaks, but is this paradox. So he's also silent. Um, he knocks, but he also is somebody who's always there and waiting for us. Kind of like Father Stephen's sermon this morning, you know, Christ is always there within us. Every anytime we're distracted, he's still there. Um, do you think that this is overstating it? Or somehow denigrating God's uh, who God is with uh, that last line. Everything hangs upon our decision. If I could read that in another church building, and there might be uh, some uh, pushback on that. It doesn't seem like it could be any other way. How so? Like any other way would mean that there would be some sort of force or, or exertion. Right. How else would it be love? Read you were beginning to formulate. <laughs> I spent a lot of my life doing that, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess it has to be read in context. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of going back to this idea of will. Everything hangs upon our decision. I think it's not a statement of raw will because it's not a decision made in a vacuum. It's a decision made within this context of desire and beauty and enticement and we still have to yield to it but you know, the Lord has done a great deal to make it attractive mm -hmm. well I think about those decisions like Moses and Theotokos did they really have a choice? they did, they did we even sing but, about it huh? Yeah, we sing yeah. about it yeah that's, that's tremendous. But I think but you look at Moses and Theotokos, and especially the Theotokos, it's kind of like the way our feasts, <laughs> the, the feast for her, like is really underlining the fact that she is a product of Israel, <laughs> that she is somebody that God foreknew in the same way like he knew the son was going to come from her. That's what the tradition teaches. Uh, and... But she, of her own will, was able to enter into that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's, though, to qu ask the question, could she have said no? On some, it's like that question in the vacuum. It's like, well, but it, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And that you can always chase every single question of like, what might have been, what could have been, what maybe might happen. And we could talk, sit around talking forever. We should get black turtlenecks and smoke cigarettes. And like, yeah. uh, uh, that that image is never going to get old, is it? Like that's just like the '60s. Yeah, <laughs> Very timeless. Even though nobody really wears that's black. That's what turtlenecks. I was wearing before I came here. <laughs> uh, smoking a cigarette. Uh, but that you get. Um, I just lost myself for a minute. Well, let's look at. Read what you going to. I was just helping you get your thread. It wasn't made in a vacuum. There was all the preparation. Exactly. Uh, the created order, uh, the way that God uh, brought about Israel and called Israel, and God responded and said yes. Uh, they, of course, immediately turn on him. <laughs> Literally, as the act is almost like consummating itself, they're like, nah, we're going to make this idol. Uh, even though you brought us all the way here and you feed us with manna from heaven and yet we really want to go back to slavery. Um, that's this the paradox of our, our freedom too, is that like God is not going to force us, he's going to entice us, uh, but also requires us to answer that and to prepare the ground for the seed to us to be able to uh, do something with the talents instead of on another side. <laughs> bury them, that we need to actually go do something with what God uh, has done for us in our freedom. Uh, I don't know. That's the weight of it. Well, I, I wonder in this context, um, you know, because we certainly talk about Mary Theotokos, but I, I even think of the, the, the man born blind. 
And the disciples asked, so is he blind because of his sin or his parents? Right. And Christ's answer is, no, this was that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And it's sort of like, not that God struck the man with blindness, but he took even the blindness in this fallen world and made it the vehicle by which the work of God would be displayed in this man's life. Or, you know, Joseph with his brother, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I wonder if, in fact, we might look at every aspect of our own lives and mm -hmm. take it that, well, each of these is something that in a fallen world God has made the vessel by which we might say yes to him and, you know, pursue this beauty, this desire. Yeah. And that's the whole, that's what the second part of the book and the third part of the book is that how do we shape and form our desire to actually go after the things that are worth it because mm -hmm. most of the time we're stuck even though we believe in God we're stuck with the kind of materialist <laughs> cynical um, skeptical we usually get tripped up by that pretty easily um, and that's part of our struggle um, let's move to the second chapter real quick do we need to take a break at all because we've already been going on an hour okay we'll keep going does anyone have any questions or anything about uh, this chapter? I like this first paragraph by the author on page 27. Nor is God an object of knowledge, concepts which never come without a secret wish, concepts which never come without a secret wish to classify and to possess are powerless to grasp the one by whom we have let ourselves be grasped. Why did you like that? Um, well, I mean, it's something Father Stephen's written about frequently in his blog about you know, God is not an object of, of it's not an object. Mm -hmm. the, the sort of knowledge we have of God is not objective in the proper sense of that word, knowledge. Um, and so what it is we're seeking in him is not what in everyday language we call knowledge. But I think certainly within my own Protestant background, that's what I imagined I was after. Really? Yeah. In the sense that like Bible study, that there's kind of a mastery of a subject will lead to a mastery of possession of it. Yeah, I mean, not that I think I would have put it in those, those words, but I don't know that I would readily, readily have recognized a knowledge that wasn't an objective knowledge. Right, or okay. That, you know, I, I knew knowing God was the goal. I read J.I. Packer, right? Knowing God, I, you know, I, I had that much down. <laughs> um, and, you know, I imagined as, as a good evangelical, well, you find that out by reading the Bible and, you know, reading it again and again. So I think that, that aspect of... Um, reading the Bible, uh, which is fascinating because unfortunately uh, in Orthodox circles we can let go of that practice uh, partly because we so strongly and I think rightly prioritize liturgical life of the church uh, and then people are afraid to read scripture because they're afraid they're not going to be able to interpret it correctly or and on some level I understand that but on another level um, the fathers absolutely <laughs> encourage and presume that you're reading scripture, that you're perusing. If you are tonsured to be a, a reader in the Orthodox Church, you're commanded that daily you should be reading scripture. Uh, so there is uh, very much an understanding, but I think what you get in a lot of circles, uh, and it, it shows it because we have whole departments and universities dedicated <laughs> to the exegesis of scripture that has By nothing atheists. to do with the church. Uh, nothing to do with the church, but it's like a historical exercise of like history of religions and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you can get that so much. You're like, oh, I'm going to become a good Christian, so I'm going to become a study expert. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm going to get my concordance. I'm going to get my, you know, all of my commentaries. I'm going to spend buku bucks, and I'm going to pour over the text. And so you memorize all this stuff, and yet Christ seems to elude you. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
or because I've read some of these commentaries and it's just like come away I'm just like well I guess I know some facts <laughs> I, I know more about like the ancient Near Eastern uh, context of like why the Ten Commandments but I don't know that doesn't really enlighten my soul uh, and that the Orthodox Church uh, underlines very much that um, to how to understand the Bible within a whole context of a web of um, relating to the text. Uh, and this actually sets us up, I think, for uh, there at the bottom of 27, where we, and this goes back to Aristotle, that you, the beginning of knowing something is in wonder. I believe that's the very beginning of his metaphysics, uh, Aristotle, that, where mm. that quote comes from. Uh, and he begins this, that, that paragraph right at the end of uh, there, bottom of 27, the true way to approach the mysteries in the first place, celebration, celebration by the whole cosmos. And here, if you go further, you, there's a line, the universe is the first Bible. Uh, what this is, this is not Wordsworthian uh, nature religion. Uh, you know, this is uh, an understanding of God's providence how God has created everything uh, in the last chapter, the way that Gregory talks, or on 28, uh, the way that Gregory talks here, um, that everything in the world is created and has a purpose to manifest the glory of God. And when you are clued into Jesus Christ, <laughs> when you understand that God is love, and you have encountered the Father in the face of Jesus Christ, and you're enlightened by the Holy Spirit, you will be able to encounter the world as a sacrament, as the whole, pre like everything is the presence of God that you get at the bottom of 28. Uh, there in kind of the middle of that paragraph. Um, at the moment of creation, it is this glory, the habod of the Bible, which completes the things created, giving them at once their density and their transparency. So the transparency, I think, is that Everything is created to show forth the glory of God. Uh, the habod is the um, kind of the spirit or the presence of God. Now, in the Orthodox Church, we have this language of energies, and I don't want to descend into the particularities of all of that because that will be a, a master class seminar uh, to talk about that. Uh, suffice to say, I think. Um, that uh, this does, these few sentences gives us a good enough definition for our, what we need for right now, that the energies of God, that all of the world is a sacrament, that God's presence, his providence, his power, his, uh, just go through all of the words that you can think of about how God relates to us, uh, they're all known through the world. So the energies then become so many modes of the divine presence. The word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, establishes each creature, enables it to share in these energies, or in the case of human beings, invites them to share them. Thus every creature names or ought to name in its own peculiar fashion the divine names. In spite of sin, which means exile from the glory, the world is still the vast theophany honored by the religions of antiquity. So the word energy, I think it, it evokes for me and it always has, it's um, <laughs> almost like crystals and like all of that kind of like uh, weirdness because the issue is that in the Greek it's energia. Uh, and so we, tra we transpose that into English and say energies. But most of us, I'd, like you could say God's divine operations or the way that God acts towards us, because energy is just the the ability to do something. Uh, so God's love, providence, um, uh, the wisdom, uh, all of these words that are attached there, they're shown forth because they're God's operation on the world. That He sustains it, that He provides for it, that He structured it, that He gives it meaning, uh, that He allows it to persist over time. All of this are aspects of God's operations or energies in the world um, and that's why they sustain everything around us even though we can't always see that <laughs> even though it's uh, like at the bottom of 29 there's a mask uh, there's a mystery to it as well
the moment of creation is the story of the Chabot of the Bible, which gives Christ against creationism once identity. But doesn't the word Chabot, though it means glory, also mean weight? I think so. And so then the word, you know, density is playing on that. Mm -hmm. But then also their transparency, and I think of the icons, which are the windows of heaven, mm -hmm. they, they, they reveal something beyond themselves. And, you know, when it talks about sharing their energy, these energies, I mean, Father Stevens talked about it's God's actions. Didn't Archbishop Alexander say that, you know, from the point of view of the creature, providence is God, that that's our experience of him. Mm -hmm. But I, I must see, you know, our, our Lord saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's sharing in his energies. Mm -hmm. And so is he saying then that when we cooperate in this in this program, we uh, we in fact become a revelation of God ourselves? Yeah, I think it goes back to the point that you were making that orthodoxy basically underlines the fact that we are created to be a certain thing, which is Reed or Adrian or Nico or Daniel, and that we when we are in following the will of God, where our will is intertwined and following his will, we are then deified, which is the same, I think, as having all of the energies of God flowing through us, if you want to talk like that, right? Mm -hmm. Because we talk about the healing of uh, soul and body, like, he is present and vivifies our own flesh. Um, and so I think there is a um, distinct connection between uh God's presence to us and then what that means for how we live and how our own natures are then fulfilled in him uh, brought to fruition brought to the, its end in him I think that, that ultimately is what deification is or theosis and I have tried very hard to not use those words whatsoever <laughs> in any kind of preaching or teaching unless we're talking about like reading something mostly because I feel like it's same with like uh, energies is that we can get this idea or, like the word mysticism yeah I, I, I really love this book but like the roots of Christian mysticism also make me go Ugh. Uh, <laughs> because it's such a consumer market for mysticism mm -hmm. um, and the popularization of that and like being, you know, I guess the whole spiritual without being religious and all that kind of stuff, and mysticism is attractive and cool and sexy and all this kind of stuff. Um, but really what it boils down to is it's still just like good old-fashioned Christianity. Like, <laughs> uh, you experience God, who is not one of the creatures of this universe, but who is the creator, and he exists above the creation, but he suffuses his entire presence throughout, throughout all of it. And so we encounter him in each other, and the sac you know, we encounter him especially in the sacraments, but we also encounter him in, in the trees and the, you know, the bird that comes and sits outside of our window. Like, uh, that can be a visitation from God if we have the eyes to see it, if we have the ability in the heart to want to see that. Of <laughs> um, thankful, and this is where the virtues come in. You only are able to see those things if you're actually trying to be virtuous. If you actually are, you know, giving thanks, if you actually are trying to love and forgive, otherwise you're just clouded. You can't see anything beside, beyond your own stench. Um, and I think that's exactly what at the end here, in spite of sin, which means an exile from that glory at the top of 29, the world is still that theophany, even if you can't see it. So that would be, would that be the proper way to try to put into context things like Stalinist Russia, World War II, World War One. Why bad things happen in the world? Uh, I, I, maybe I'm morbid, but like whenever I've read history or mm -hmm. like listened to history on podcasts and things, sometimes I'll try to imagine what it might have liked to have been in those situations. And some of them seem you know, bleak and hopeless. So Yeah, and the Stalinist uh, terrors, the multiple times in which he uh, executed hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Christians. Uh, and so the Russian church of the, of the 20th century produced the most martyrs of Christianity almost put together. Um, as in the first like two millennia, like in the 20th century, Russia produced uh, as many or more than what had gone previously. 
Um, and you get through all of that, you know, uh, I would not say, I would say a, a purification in a particular sense, not in a purification of like, this was a necessary thing that needed to happen. And this is out of the freedom of people following their own uh, problems. You know, Stalin was a seminarian. He right. was exposed to, yes, he was an Orthodox seminarian. So a lot of the evils in the world have been released by Orthodox seminaries. But, <laughs> uh, but you can totally see if like, that's the same thing, like Judas was a part of the apostles. Like he was right there among the, you know, the merry band of the apostles. And while most of them are kind of like, have no idea, it seems, what is going on besides they need to follow this guy, uh, Judas completely betrays him. Um, so I think when you get to that place of like the holiness and the reaction, you look at Satan, like the fall from that can be horrific. And so it all, like that freedom, you know, it either, you know, you either baptize it and sanctify it or it gets pretty stinky pretty quick. So it goes back to the Garden of Eden, basically. I, mean, I, think, I think everybody recapitulates Adam and Eve's sin all the time. That's basically, we choose something besides God to satiate our uh, desire to be him. <laughs> we, want the, uh, we want the route around the cross. We don't really want the cross. What we want is to be able to be like God and act like God. I mean, that's, that's why we satiate ourselves. We want to be happy, but we want a shortcut to it. Because unfortunately, the world that we live in the only path to that is through the cross, which is self-denial and picking it up and doing it. Because love is exactly that. I mean, I would say, when we say God is love, you could say God is the cross. <laughs> because God is love, Jesus Christ. How do you know who Jesus Christ is? How do you define Jesus Christ? Uh, even if you say, okay, he was a nice teacher. But if you look at all of his teachings, they all, at the real, the mystery, the kernel, the very center of all those teachings is the cross. You cannot do the Beatitudes without the cross. You cannot be meek. <laughs> you cannot be humble. You cannot have poverty of spirit without the cross. So you could almost say like the cross is like etched into, the cross is like a manifestation of what exists in the very heart of who God is. And if you, and I think it'd be perfectly fine, like God's love is cruciform. That is what it is. Uh, because everybody, love is one of those terms, right? It's, we use it all the time. God is love. Uh, and we can bless anything and everything, even things against nature. If you can read in between the lines of what I mean by that. <laughs> Paul, Romans 1. Uh, against nature versus the fulfillment of what nature is. Um, it's got to be the cross. I mean, this is what the early fathers would talk about. The cross is etched into creation itself. Um, you get Justin, they're literally like, look at what, like, our bodies are made. <laughs> I mean, obviously you can say, like, well, yeah, because Jesus hung on a cross, they killed him this way. But, like, they will, they will reflect on, like, we're physically, we look like a cross. Um, the, the trees look like cross. Like, they, they will just, and this is, again, them finding Christ in everything uh, and being able to reflect upon that and then move them closer to the heart of God uh, instead of, because you could say, like, well, that's pretty silly. You really like that because, you know, evolution and all this stuff. You're like, okay, fine, whatever. But that's, that's not, you're not seeing what the point is, what they're trying to interpret and understand. Um, I, this, that weight of the freedom is um, exactly why, let's see here. I had a train of thought, but I'm going to get off that train. Uh, is there any other aspect here in this section, God hidden and universal? So what, what does it mean to, to talk about God's hiddenness? How is God hidden? So we've already kind of talked about like the idea of like sin, right? Hides, obscures God. But there's, a, there's something even more fundamental here than that. Talking about where he starts going into like the cataphatic and apophatic. apophatic so, theology. well, so those are two different things, right? So let's just look at thirty-one, the the small quote from Dionysius, and we'll use that <laughs> to 
try and work through this because that the mystery that is beyond God himself, the ineffable, that gives its name to everything is complete affirmation, complete negation, beyond all affirmation and all negation. So is this a Buddhist uh, <laughs> uh, saying here from Dionysius? What is he getting at with this? Father Thomas Hopker talked about this, and I think he must have had this very passage in mind. I bet he read this book a lot. Because <laughs> I would love, like, I think this is a great book to be able to go back and just kind of refresh particular passages, because Dionysius can be, I've slugged through Dionysius before, it can be hard. So what is he saying? The mystery that is beyond God himself. Is there a mystery beyond God himself? What does that mean? The mystery that's beyond all affirmation and negation. I mean, it's really the heart of apophaticism, right? Mm -hmm. That, and it goes back to desire and beauty. Yes. That Excellent. If we ever, if we ever somehow imagined we had grasped God, there would be no, nothing more to desire. Would that be God? To seek, right? <laughs> and so, you know, in terms of complete affirmation, complete negation, it's like. Is God good? Well, of course God's good. He's really good. In fact, he's the best good. Well, in fact, if by good you mean anything that we would mean by good, that's not what he is because he's beyond that. So he's not really good. He's, mm -hmm. I, it's, I think it was like Meister Eckhart who said, to call God good is like calling the sun dark. Right. And, but then to say, okay, so it's in the negation. Well, no, negation isn't really it either. If you think you've caught, you've captured him in the negation, mm -hmm. no, it's beyond that as well. So there's a kind of a paradox that he's kind of putting there before you. And I think a lot of it, uh, the language of Dionysius, you get like from mystical theology, that is the name of the treatise, mystical theology, uh, mysticos, um, what it is, and that means mystical or mysticos means just kind of like secret or hidden. It doesn't uh, mean ecstatic experience of God. Uh, but what you get is that language just falls apart. We just cannot wrap our minds and brains and our language cannot grasp God. And so when you make it into this paradox, it's beyond, God is the mystery beyond God himself. Does that mean there's a secret, there's a mystery beyond God? No, what it means is you're, you are approaching God and you've named God, you know who God is, and yet be careful <laughs> that you think as you were saying, that you've suddenly got, you know, the 360 vision or like uh, that you've got a one up on God because God is ex beyond anything that you're going to be able to wrap your head around. Um, and it needs this kind of paradox there because, and let's, so let's take this on a practical level. So that's great. We've talked about the metaphysics of God, right? God is beyond <laughs> all the created order. Cool. So there's a few things that flow from that. You could fall into despair and nihilism there too because it's like, so if I can't really know, like, does that mean I don't know God? Right? You can take apophaticism and go really far too uh, in a ways that I don't think, it's not, it's not what apophaticism is. We know who God is in Jesus Christ. This is a way of talking about and like ordering uh, who we are as creatures and what our language, uh, what we can actually understand. It's a, it's a place of humility. And I think the other place then is that all of this is in order that we actually have the encounter with God. This is where if you have ever read Vladimir Lossky, the thing he underlines, and I think it's the most important thing about, because Lossky loves to talk about apophaticism and you can just get lost in the reveries about it. But the main point is that apophaticism is so that you actually encounter God and that you're not encountering your own concepts or your own idols of who you think God is so that God can always kind of go, nope, you're playing the wrong game. <laughs> like, <laughs> nope, like, be careful, like, step back, uh, question yourself. And, you know, like Job before um, God, like, were you there when I did all of this, when I created everything? It's like, know your role, <laughs> know who you are, know, like, where you stand in regard to everything. And... Um, Love me back. <laughs> uh, I, I think, and I think it's it's helpful to analogous. This is the best way I've ever tried to understand it or explain it. Is um, 
if you've ever had even a close friendship or a close relationship, do you ever fully understand the other person? Much less do you fully understand yourself. I hardly understand myself. I'm still discovering like, you know, all of my twists and turns internally. So why, if you couldn't fully understand another person, much less yourself, why would you imagine that you could fully understand God? Uh, we are as much a mystery as anything. And a lot of that is exactly because our freedom. We're not predetermined, right? We're not programs that are just running our coding <laughs> until something messes up and then we get stuck in spin cycle or something. We, we have freedom, you know? We have awful freedom. We have the awful weight of that kind of freedom. Um, it, it produces the weight of glory or it can produce the weight of nothingness. So let's go to God-man. This is always... I always inordinately spend time on the first chapter, and now we got like 20 minutes left for two more chapters. But what did you all gather from the God Man? We could probably just stick with Maximus the Confessor. And he might wrap up the whole chapter for us right here in the very beginning of this chapter. So, um, Adrian, do you mind just reading mm, up until you read, get to secondly? So you can start with, there is no culture. There is no culture or religion that has not yet, that has not received and does not express a visitation of the word. Maximus the Confessor distinguishes three degrees in the embodiment of the word. In the first place, the very existence of the cosmos, understood as a theophany. This symbolism is the, is the foundation of the ancient religions which see it in the means, see in it the means to the deepest spiritual understanding. Excellent. Uh, I want you to read all three, but I want us to go through every stage before we just go through all three and go, okay, what? <laughs> um, I think there is, there's already a challenge, I think, to a lot of people to even that first sentence, that there is no culture or religion that has not received and does not express uh, a visitation of the word. What do you think that he is saying there? Is that, does that mean that uh, all truths are just different paths up the mountain? Is it like... Um partial like uh, explications of the image of God into certain cultures even though they don't have the full revelation of the truth, of truth. yes uh, Nico what seeds of truth, seeds of truth. spermaticos logos mm-hmm. uh, do you care to expound a little bit on what seeds of truth is um, that even though God didn't reveal himself to everybody like he did to Israel put the seeds in all of his creatures to know him and that when he revealed himself we would recognize him when he came the the other book by Clement that I was talking about before we started recording and I cannot remember the title of it of course <laughs> even though I read the whole thing uh, he is it on the back there is it transfiguring time yes okay transfiguring time the beginning of that book he will uh, go into this a little more detail he'll go through like Greek uh, uh, Hindu uh, and other uh, religions and talk about how they have aspects of basic kind of wisdom tradition and truths uh, that, are, that are present in the religion that he then sees of course Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that uh, a lot of it has to do with their philosophy of time, uh, what they think like um, the creative creation is for because some, some of these religions it's basically creation really is just a mirage <laughs> like creation really there's no real time and there's freedom is not really the like uh, the axis upon which things like turn right like our human freedom that we can actually participate in God and like transfigure uh, like the title says transfigure our time and actually redeem things uh, basically a lot of them are escape mechanisms basically you want to get to nirvana or you want to get out of this, this suffering and this existence. Um, so I think it also what we already encountered in this, uh, the God and Hindu universal is that the first Bible is the universe, is the created order, and that God, and this is Paul in Romans 1, right? God has 
uh, spoken through the created order uh, such that all sorts of people have, they have their conscience and they have uh, reality is always kind of impinging upon them to realize like uh, you're a creature. <laughs> Uh, you don't understand the depths of the mystery of, of everything. Adrian, can you read number two? Secondly, the revelation of the personal God who engendered history and the embodying, embodying of the word and the law in the sacred scripture. Judaism and Islam are obvious examples. So we have uh, the first, and I think we need to keep this in mind, these degrees from Maximus are about embodiment of the word. So we have a kind of... Uh, embodiment of the word in the, the created order that you see in the spermaticus logos, the, the seeds that are within uh, all major kind of religions and cultures, and then you have a more specialized, specific revelation of the personal God, uh, where you don't just uh, come to an idea that there's a God, but that there's a specific God. You actually know uh, his name, what he's like, what he wants. <laughs> Uh, what he then asks of you, uh, and this is, of course, embodied uh, of the word in the law um, that you see in Judaism, right? That uh, you get from Sinai, you have his revelation of who he is, and then he gives out his law and how he's going to structure the community of Israel. And then the third. Finally, the personal incarnation of the word who gives full meaning to his cosmic and spiritual embodiments, freeing the former from the temptation to absorb his self in an impersonal divine essence, and the latter from the temptation to separate God and humanity, leaving no possibility of communion between them. For in Christ, to quote the fourth, to quote the fourth ecumenical council, God and man are united without confusion or change, but also without division or separation, and the divine energies reflected by creatures and objects do not lead to an anonymous divinity, but to the face of the transfigured Christ. So we've had the, the, the world, the cosmos, we've had the word, uh, sacred scripture, and now we have the full embodiment of the word in the incarnation of the, the word has literally become a man and shown uh, his face to us. And this then fully gives, uh, as he says, the meaning to the cosmic and the scriptural uh, embodiments. And it, it's fascinating because then he says it frees the former, the cosmic, from this idea that, because you get with cosmic, uh, with pantheism, uh, you get the, basically uh, the temptation, as you see, I think, in like Hinduism, to absorb the divine self and the impersonal divine essence. There isn't really a personal God. There might be some kind of divinity or something that's beyond the world, but you don't really know. It's a mystery as to what exactly that is, right? Because you don't have a per more personal revelation. Uh, and then if you have with the uh, temptation I think of the scriptural, uh, the second revelation of the personal God, uh, is to separate God and humanity. Uh, and you can kind of get this juridical, right? Like God is, I mean, I encountered this growing up. I call it like bibliolatry. God is a book. <laughs> and God is like reflected in uh, like these words when like, no, God is revealed through those words, but scripture is kind of an icon uh, of who God is. It's not uh, captured God. Um, it's a true testament to who God is, uh, but God uh, in Jesus Christ is free from that. This whole, then, this is the basis of all of, especially Orthodox Christianity, of understanding the sacraments flow out of the fact of the God man. Right? We have access to the sacraments because of the God man, Jesus Christ. Uh, on 37 in the middle of the page um, the purpose of the incarnation right after the quote from the Odes of Solomon the purpose of the incarnation is to establish full community between God and humanity so that in Christ humanity may find adoption and immortality often called deification by the fathers not by emptying human nature but by fulfilling it or filling it in the divine life since only in God is human nature truly itself We're pretty. This is probably the chapter that was the least troublesome, I'm going to guess, because we all basically understand basics of Christology. Is there any questions about this chapter?
what it does seem as though when he talks about these three levels here, it's really degrees of potential for communion with God. That if you have only the cosmic revelation, there's no potential because there's no one, there's no person there to be in communion with. Yep. If you have the second, there's someone there, but there's a wall between you. Right. So there can't be communion even though there's a person, but only in Christ incarnate is God the transfigured Christ, the mm-hmm. specific person whom we can enter into full communion with. Mm-hmm. And there's the quote by Dionysius on page 38 where it says that by the love of Christ for us the super essential gave up his mystery and manifested himself by assuming humanity but at the end it says for the mystery of Jesus has remained hidden. Mm. So mystery but not the mystery. <laughs> so you can be in communion but still it's um, cast out. Well, I think that that next sentence, that, <laughs> right, that next sentence is helpful. <clears throat> what he means by the mystery of Jesus remaining hidden, mm-hmm. that no reason and no intelligence have fathomed his essential nature. Mm-hmm. That even though, it's like, experience. Yeah. do you understand what it means that God is God, like Jesus Christ is God, both God and man? You basically subscribe to that belief, but do you like? Can you boil that down beyond like basically saying that he's God and man? And what the ramifications of that are, you don't understand. I don't understand it. It's a in a sense, it's like a paradox. How is God a man? <laughs> like the rest of Christianity. Yes. Paradox. Paradox. There is. Um, I'm trying to measure our time. Do we? I don't think we have to necessarily go through the the next chapter, but I do want us to hit uh, before we get there to. Um, Oh, wait, we're still in God of Man. We still have two chapters left. Oi. Um, I do want us to at least... Uh, were in any questions about God, unity, and d- d- difference? Or there's at least one section here on God and Man, if you haven't been able to read it yet, to be able to read on uh, how he saves us about his sacrifice. is a great quote from Gregory Nazianzen here. Greg Nazianz and Greg the theologian, same same guy. Where is this book? Uh, it's on page forty-six to forty. Whoop, sorry, forty-four to forty-five. So I think the the operative, if we want to just after that quote on page forty-four uh, from Maximus. So Christ's sacrifice was not in the least demanded by the Father as the only thing that could satisfy divine justice, appease the wrath of God, and incline him favorably towards the human race. That would be regression to a non-biblical idea of sacrifice. He references a a contemporary uh, scholar who just died a few years ago, but um, Gregory uh, meditates upon the sacrifice of Abraham, uh, and this is where I think this paragraph defines because when we think of sacrifice we we almost all think of because it's just in the water uh, for Christianity that the sacrifice of Christ was something to appease the wrath of the Father right that's kind of the basic telling if you're going to go somewhere to a Bible believing church around here that's what they're going to tell you the gospel is even though they can't actually point to any real like passages that are that explicit it's just easy <laughs> it is it's I fall into that. I, I have to talk myself out of that. That it was a matter of life and death. It wasn't a mathematical equation that needed to be balanced. When I think this this helps then this paragraph there on 44 that starts with Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice is a sacrifice of praise, of sanctification, of restoration, by which he offers the whole of creation to the Father, so that the Father may bring it to life in the Holy Spirit. We're already getting an aspect here of the next chapter about God, unity, and, and difference. Um, it is truly a Pasch, the Passover, a Pascha, the passing over of creation into the kingdom of life. Because of the ontological unity of Christ with the whole human race, just mentioned above, the sacrifice was a bloody crucifixion. United with us in being and in love, Christ took on himself all the hatred, rebellion, derision, despair, 
all the murders, all the suicides, all the tortures, all the agonies of all humanity throughout all time and space. In all of these, Christ bled, suffered, cried out in anguish and desolation. But as he suffered in a human way, so he was trustful in a human way. So he had faith in the same way that we need to have faith. Father, into the, thy hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, death is swallowed up in life. The abyss of hatred is lost in the bottomless depths of love. A few drops of blood falling into the earth as into an immense chalice have renewed the entire universe. And even Gregory here in this quote uh, at the top of 45, he says, Was this a ransom to the Father, this bleeding of the Christ? It was not the Father that held us captive. And then why should the blood of his only son be pleasing to the Father who refused to accept Isaac when Abraham offered him as a burnt offering? Um, it's not that the father demanded this ransom from the son, but it was the only way that the son was going to be able to save us, to actually go into the depths of all of our suffering and pain, uh, to be rejected, to um, that he went all the way through the crucifixion. And through all of that, and this is kind of the baseline for the Trinitarian theology of the next chapter, uh, <laughs> His faithfulness to the Father, his connection to the Father, why he's always praying to the Father, is how um, we are to be saved, right? We share in the same faith that he has in the Father, that if we are obedient to the Father, the will of the Father, uh, Christ, is, as the Scripture talks about, is like our elder brother who did this all for us, and then basically is like <laughs> coaching us along right beside us, inside of us, to even go you know, where we went this morning, um, to feeding us with himself to be able to be um, raised by the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what happened to Jesus Christ. Even death uh, is not going to separate us from God because God will raise us up. So that sacrifice that's there is not a sacrifice to some internal uh, like God problem that had to be worked out. It was a problem that we had uh, Clustos where is helpful on this because what it starts to seem like is the problem is somehow in God like there's something outside of God like inside of God that's dictating that he has to like kill his son in order to be like okay with humans that's you see the logic starts to unravel pretty quickly what it is is the son had to go like the product like find the prodigal <laughs> get into the pigsty <laughs> pick him up and then take him back to the father's house so that means he had to go into Hades. He had to die. Because that's where we are. That's where Adam is. That's where Eve is. And that's exactly why our, our depiction of, of resurrection, that herring of, of Hades, is so strong. We are almost out of time. Is there anything in God, unity, and difference? And we can, we may, <laughs> the next time we get together, uh, spend an inordinate amount of time on that. We could if we want. Or we can begin to, you know, start there because we didn't get through it. Uh, well, I don't know. Did everybody even get to this chapter? Which one? Chapter four: God, unity, and difference. So if we didn't even get there, then maybe I we're. Skimmed it. No, I didn't. I'll start there. So we could start there instead of going ahead and because we need all of this. And if you you know read reread God, uh, the God Man one too. Um, I know it can be a little hard to pick up his points, but if you if you give it uh, a quick read through once and then go back and slowly read it, um, and if you put those little I don't understand and those markers, then if you read it the second time, you might be able to catch like he's very economical in the way he writes. So like if you miss a line of reasoning at the beginning of the chapter, you're gonna get halfway through the chapter and be like, what is going on? Um, so just, if you pay attention to the, the way he line, outlines things, um, it can be helpful. He does tend to move pretty quickly. He doesn't do a lot of repeating of, of what he said. But the God, unity, and, and difference, just to give an idea, is a basically kind of a mini uh, catechism in what Orthodox believe about the Trinity. So I think we should spend a little bit of time there. <laughs>